Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. My guest today is Catherine Young, Head of Investments at Cambuya. Catherine, welcome. Hi, Alex. Thanks for having me. So I thought we should start off with what Cambuya is, maybe give a bit of background to the listeners about what it actually does and its objectives. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So Cambuya is a family office. Uh, It's a single family office in that it services people from a a single family. It's it's quite mature. It's been around since the 80s. So that's quite mature as family offices go, especially in Australia. So what that means is that we do have several generations that we service, several, several generations of the family that we service. So we call it a single family office and it is, but there are multiple family groups within the family office that we that we work with. And we, as a family office, we you know service their needs quite holistically. So we manage their investments and, or we advise them on their investments. We also do their, their tax and accounting work. We help to manage their the foundations that are that have been part of the family legacy for, for quite a long time. We help them with their IT needs. We we do quite a lot of, of things for them. So I guess family offices are always very interesting to people. And I think maybe part of it is because you know, the wealth that's come behind them. Also, how they invest is quite opaque. What are the sort of the unique pieces of a family office that you would say maybe differs to a particular institutional investor that would see such as a super fund? Sure. So I think the first thing to say about family office as a space, which I'm sure most people will understand is that it's extremely hard to generalize about because family offices are, you know, they really run the gamut, which makes sense because they are, you know, typically small organizations that are working with a single family. And so it makes sense they would be very different because they're very focused on that specific family. In general, I would say that you can classify family offices by sort of their age and whether or not there has been a wealth transfer. So for a family office like Cambuya, it's, it's quite mature. There have there has been a wealth transfer. There's actually been multiple really. So, um, you know, it, that makes it more institutional in its approach and in its style than many family offices probably would be. Uh, for a family office like ours, that is more on that institutional end. I would say the key differences between us and maybe an industry fund, a small industry fund or something, would be that we we would tend to be we're much less constrained. So much less constrained by regulation, less constrained by fees, less constrained by liquidity. Uh, those things, you know, all make a make a really big difference. And I think as part of an outcropping of that, we tend to be much more concentrated. So concentrated in terms of asset allocation to asset classes, but also concentrated within asset classes and, you know, to specific investments. Uh, so that concentration is a big deal. We would probably also be have a lot more illiquidity in the portfolio than than a you know a super fund or an industry fund would have. And you know, I would say that we probably we have the luxury of being able to manage with a really genuinely long-term mindset because we don't have the constraints around 
uh, you know, cash flow sort of coming in and out, and we don't have the constraints around regulation and peer sensitivity. So that, you know, that allows us to be probably more long term in our average decision making. Is it fair to say that a typical family office, you know, is very much absolute return focused? Yes, I do think that's fair to say, actually. I mean, I think, you know, it, it, I think it is fair to say, and it has a lot to do with that, that lack of constraint. Because when you are, you know, when we don't have so many peer sensitivities, we don't need to be focused on a benchmark. It means that sort of the world is our oyster in terms of investments. We're just very unconstrained on the opportunity set. And so naturally, when you are, you know, I think it's it's natural when you're that unconstrained that you think of everything sort of relative to whatever your objective is. And typically that objective tends to be structured in a CPI plus sort of way. That's how ours are object. That's how ours are focused or structured. And so that means is that you just, you know, you have to have something to compare, you know, to, to rank order or to, you know, to classify investment opportunities as better or worse. And so you use your own objective uh, to do that. And so you just, I think you become absolute return oriented uh, because of that lack of constraint. And, and likewise, how, how does the sort of the family, I know it's obviously each family has a very different background. What's sort of the, the thinking behind the willingness to take risk and, and the, the sensitivity to losing money? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question because, you know, I think when I, when I moved into family office, everyone kept telling me the old adage in family offices, don't lose money. And I, you know, I think that that is, that's, that's true because that's human nature, right? Nobody likes to lose money. So I think that that is true to some extent, but I think it's actually not as true as people think. We are absolute return oriented in our approach. But like I said, I think that comes more from, it's more, it has more to do with the lack of constraint and opportunity set and how you manage that than it does with an actual aversion to, to losing money because, you know, I think that it's different than people think for a, a, a few reasons. You know, number one, if you're working with a family office where the, the person who made that money or who grew the wealth in the first place uh, is still controlling the investments, that person probably has a pretty high risk tolerance because they probably had to take some risk to make the money in the first place. So their their nature is comfortable with risk, I think. And then, and the other thing is that, you know, these people, many, even if you didn't make the money, you know, they understand that they have a capacity to take risk. They understand that if they, you know, make a decision and it doesn't work out, they're they're still going to be able to put food on the table. So that capacity engenders risk taking. Uh, And I think, you know, there's also, you know, they don't have as many liquidity concerns that also enables you enables you to take risk. And the other thing is that if you if you inherited the wealth, then you are probably part of a growing family. And and probably that pool of money that you inherited needs to support a growing family. And so you understand that not doing anything is also a risk because time and most likely inflation will cause you to lose money anyways. You know, I think it's human nature to not want to lose money, but I think that in family office, there's plenty of risk appetite as well. So you mentioned about being unconstrained. Now, obviously, a family office has limited resources. How do you think about the resourcing in terms of the amount of opportunities that are out there? You can pretty much go anywhere. How do you sort of balance that out? Yeah, that's a that's a, another interesting point, I think, because you, 
yeah, the world is your, you're spoiled for choice, right? You're spoiled for choice. And that is a really lucky position to be in, but it does leave you having difficult decisions to make sort of all the time uh, because you have so many things to evaluate. You also have, you know, typically you have a, you know, you have a, a set of money, but it doesn't, you know, you don't have the, the level of resourcing that you would at a super fund or an industry fund, right? You don't want to hold that, you know, have your fixed cost base be that high for it. So you do have to um, think carefully about the resources that you have. It's it's very interesting because you, you get to have a really blank slate about what kind of resources should you have in-house, what kind of resources should you should you leave external. Do you have to pay for it if it's external or is there some way that you can use your network uh, to, to get what you need? So these resourcing decisions are important for every organization, of course, but I think that they are really interesting in the family office space. And so you know, I think that it's extremely difficult to generalize about how a family office structures its team, structures its resources and uses consultants, because that really would be very specific to the office, to the to the family and what exactly they're trying to achieve and how they're trying to get there. You know, some have big private equity teams in house, others have pretty sizable property teams in-house and outsource more equity management, whereas others really prefer to pick stocks and, and, and outsource the rest of it. So it's, just, it's, a, it's very different to each family office. Can you give a bit of color in terms of what specifically that Cambuya does internally versus you know, externally or with the use of a consultant? Yeah, sure. So we, have, we prefer to have breadth internally and to, and to source depth externally. So we have, you know, our internal team is five people. And we have each of those has a wide, none of us have a really specific specialty. So, you know, I probably have, you know, my background is in manager research, and that might be the most specialized of anyone on the team. Um, And that's just, you know, as you know, one, one little area of investments, and that covers a broad variety of asset classes. So I think, you know, we have chosen to have breadth so that we can cover a lot of ground in terms of types of investment strategies and asset classes. We can also, you know, work on asset allocation um, itself and uh, the sort of the more personal advice side of, of working in a family office. Um, so we have breadth. We can we can cover, um, you know, property, private equity, credit, equities, uh, alternatives in-house. But then we use uh, um, experts, we use advisors to sort of go deeper into those areas and bring us ideas. So we use experts to for idea generation a lot. And then we use the internal team to, to filter that. You know, whereas I think other offices that that choose to sort of swing the bat in a specific asset class would would choose to have depth in house. Mm-hmm. I'm curious in terms of how institutional are you in the, in in the thinking? Do you, do you have an investment committee that sort of helps to set the asset allocation, and then you guys are working? How, how does it sort of build up? Yeah, yeah. Governance structures are another really big, interesting point in family office, and those absolutely run the gamut as well. We do have an investment committee that is external. Uh, they're external, independent experts, and so they, uh, you know, they really they don't make the final decision for any of the investments made by the family, but they advise the family. So they are sort of a check on us as the internal investment team. We don't report to them, but we run everything, you know 
that we think is a good idea, pass them. And they will endorse that or maybe send it back for they think that we should investigate this area or that area area a little bit more. But that, you know, they play a very important role because they help the family get comfortable. I think that the internal team, it remains strong and focused on, on the right areas. But they also, again, they help us with, they help us get more depth in specific areas because those investment committee members all have, you know, different backgrounds. And so they bring depth in different areas to the equation. You know, as we think about sort of risk and you sort of talk about these concentrated bets, is it fair to surmise that the family office can have sort of more of a barbell approach to the way that it it invests, which is quite different or distinct to a super fund where their balanced portfolio is across all asset classes and it's sort of almost an equal weighted risk across everything, as opposed to maybe a family office that may have some very low risk, maybe cash or fixed income, and then having sort of really strategic bets in their thinking. Is that fair to... Yeah, look, you know, I think that's a really, I think that you do end up with a lot of that. And it makes sense because, again, when you come back to this absolute return objective, think about, you know, how can we achieve that objective or how could we maybe even do a little bit better than that objective? I think a barbell is a natural, a barbell strategy falls really naturally from that consideration. So you think, let's let's take a swing at this private equity, this venture capital, this property, this infrastructure, but let's keep this cash on hand to facilitate our capital calls and let's, you know, to to facilitate any opportunities that we that we have along the way. So I think that balance of risk is just a natural, intuitive, logical way to approach it when you have the world as as your opportunity set. I think it also helps you manage the time horizon part of the decision because you have this capital you're always trying to you know you're thinking to yourself is this a great opportunity or is there going to be another one down the road I mean every investor faces that faces that opportunity but when you have this I think it's especially acute when you have this absolute return orientation so that you know, I think again it makes sense to hold a proportion to have this barbell approach where you have a lot of liquidity on the other side balancing that liquidity illiquidity because it also helps you balance the idea about will there be another great opportunity down the road mm-hmm. yeah there, there seems to be a lot of pros in, in a family office right being unconstrained you don't have the uh, the pressure around liquidity that you need to to have for a typical super fund you've got risk tolerance that seems to be better yeah are there potential cons alongside it in terms of maybe you know a lot of these families have made money from one particular area so they've got a very high bias or maybe that's a large cornerstone to the portfolio and then you've got to build out the rest of the portfolio alongside this piece so what are what are the potential uh, challenges rather than a, than a con of, of running a, a family office yeah there are lots of pros alex i gotta say there are lots of pros as you say the uh you know i like to say it's intellectually satisfying being in family office because you just because of this sort of you know unconstrained nature of it but there always is a challenge that comes alongside those fantastic pros. And I think the number one challenge is that you need as a professional, you know, as an investment professional, you need to ensure that you're really well aligned to the philosophy of the office, the leadership of the office and, and the family. And, um, and when I say aligned, I mean aligned um, in terms of your philosophy, your investment philosophy, how you think it makes sense to make money. You would really want to be very well aligned on that, but also, 
you know, just from a personality perspective, you need to make sure that the way that you, you know, make decisions that you and this, the leadership of the family and the leadership of the office can, can work well together to make decisions. It's not that you make decisions the same way, but you need to be able to communicate clearly about that because it's, because it's a small organization typically, and because you know the world is your oyster, you need to be able to make decisions quickly and filter quickly. So you need to be aligned in terms of philosophy and personality. And I think um, you know the challenges that you mentioned there as possible challenges in terms of you know there's already a lot of a lot going on in the portfolio that has to be managed. That's a, that actually happens a lot in in family office portfolio construction. You have a single concentrated position that is. Uh, illiquid or effectively illiquid. Um, and, and so you have to manage the portfolio around that. That is a, you know, that's a really common challenge. But I think that as long as you are aligned on investment philosophy and making decisions, you know, that kind of stuff, you know, that kind of stuff can always be dealt with. Um, so, you know, that's the key thing is alignment and sort of trust and faith uh, in the governance structures. The other thing I think as a, you know, as a professional that you, um, you know, want to be aware of going into to family office is that it can be, because it can be quite opaque. Um, and so it can also be, you know, both from the inside and from the outside. So, you know, you can end up being really um, inwardly focused often uh, as a family office because, you know, you don't really have to ask, you know, consult with anyone else if you don't want to. Um, so you can end up being, um, you know, pretty inwardly focused. So it's, it's always important to, to keep your head on a swivel, you know, to um, stay really active with your with your peer network. It's one of the another one of the great things is that, you know, you don't you're not you're not competing with your peers. <laughs> you, um, you know, they can be a great resource. And so, you know, you need to stay active, um, working with them and, and giving, you know, giving back to that network as well and, and making sure that you really think deeply about what other people are doing and how you can, how you can potentially use that uh, in your organization. Just going back a little bit more specifically to the investments that you look at, you, know, you talk a lot about the family and making sure that you communicate and map back to the family's expectations and so forth. Do you feel mm-hmm. that there's maybe a, a preference for less, less complex investments? You know, there's a lot of new investment strategies that are coming out that are really quite complicated that maybe are a little bit hard to explain and the family prefers more simple uh, real asset style investments or clearer strategies that they understand better. Do you find that that's potentially something that the that's part of the the thinking? Yes, I think that is one of those adages about family office that actually really is true in practice. Uh, I don't think that's a bad thing, I should say, um, but I do think that you know that is that is normal. First off, in the Australian context, many families made their money out of real assets. And so, you know, that makes sense to them. Okay. So number one, that makes sense to them. They can, they feel comfortable with it. They can wrap their arms around it. And that is completely rational, right? As an investor, it makes plenty of sense for you to invest more capital where you feel that you have, um, you know, some sort of an informational advantage or at a minimum that you feel you understand the risks that you're taking. So I think it, you know, that it's really rational from that perspective. I also think that, 
when you are in family office, um, and especially in those family offices where the, you know, the person or the family that made the wealth continues to control the wealth, um, you know, I think that they are acutely aware that they are now playing in a sphere when they've gone into finance, they are now potentially playing in a sphere where they are, you know, a small fish in a big pond and they, you know, are aware that they are, you know, potentially easy marks. Um, so I think that they do have a, a really strong tendency to avoid uh, those things that seem excessively, you know, complex or that, you know, they have a difficulty understanding because, it, you know, it leaves them more vulnerable in terms of, um, you know, being taken advantage of, you know, in fees or, or what have you. So I, I think that 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 actually is true. But, um, you know, that's um, that's OK. <laughs> that I, You know, I don't think it's a terrible thing at all, as long as you're reasonably well diversified in terms of underlying risks. Um, you know, I, I think that's fine. And I don't think you need, you know, an, an, a hedge fundy type of strategy to make sure that you have, you know, diversification in terms of underlying risks. It's a very interesting conversation around risk as well, because for a lot of these families that have built their wealth, you know, they have had their team, their family running these businesses typically. And so they understand the risk that's there. They feel they can control it as opposed to sort of the broader market risk, which is much more unconstrained. It's much harder for them to control. You've got to sort of trust somebody else to manage that risk. There's a bit of a yeah. disconnect there. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, I think um, lack of control or loss of control is different for everyone. Um, and so I think, uh, you know, it's difficult for everyone, excuse me. Uh, and so, you know, I think that that's, it's really, um, I think this actually gets back to, you know, sort of our earlier point about, um, you know, don't lose money. Is that, is that the adage in family office? And I think that that's, you know, probably where, where that idea comes from is that people, um, you know, feel like, you know, families are, are hesitant to take risks that they, that they don't understand very well. It's not that they're hesitant to take risk. So they're hesitant to take risks that they don't understand, that they feel they can't control because they are used to being able to sort of take a controlled risk or, you know, have more control over, over the outcome. Um, so I think that's probably where that, you know, where that comes from. I think it also, you know, this kind of, there's all kinds of very interesting <laughs> behavioral aspects to, to managing wealth in the family office space. Um, and, and, and that is also one of them because there's this control issue uh, changes a lot. I think after you've had a wealth transfer, I think that that, um, you know, that control over the outcome tends to be more acute for uh, someone who, you know, built a business or, or made the wealth, as you say, but it fades as, you know, the wealth is transferred to successive generations. Mm -hmm. Let, let's take it a little bit more close to today and, and to markets. One, one of the things that has become obviously quite prominent is currency. Um, Australian yeah. dollars been moving around quite a lot. You know, how important is managing currency as part of your, um, your book? It's, it's actually really important. It's, um, you know, it's one of the bigger decisions that we make. Uh, and, and that, you know, I think everyone can appreciate that's been especially true lately over the past few months as currency was just so volatile in March uh, and April particular, in particular. Uh, you know, I think it's challenging because you know, everyone has to make a currency decision, um, but I think in our case, it is, a, um, you know, it is quite complex because we have so much illiquidity and we, we do have quite a lot of offshore, illiquid offshore exposure 
Um, and those aren't, you know, managed in neatly in, you know, tight, little tidy structures. Uh, so managing the currency, you know, currency exposure related to those really does fall on our plate. And so, you know, having to, you know, develop a process to, to manage that um, and to, you know, there's just so many elements in play uh, constantly because we have, you know, commitments that we've made that will be called upon uh, over, you know, you know, the coming years. And so we have to manage that liability. But we also, of course, have the assets of, uh, you know, investments that have been made over the years. And we have, um, you know, the, the exposure in, in more liquid investments. So there's kind of there's just a lot of different pieces of that puzzle Um you know, in play. And so that's, it's just sort of an, it's an ongoing challenge for us really both to do, both to build the, you know, the process by which we manage it. And then also just technically to execute it. What is the best, you know, best execution for that. So we're, I won't say that we've solved that, that issue is just sort of, it's just constantly ongoing really. And I find, you know, the more that we talk to our peers about that um, and try to gain insight from their experience, we find that everyone is doing it really, really differently. Mm-hmm. So, and you talk about the volatility of late. That's created a lot of sort of maybe short-term opportunities in some cases, particularly in credits. One of them that, that's come up a lot. Mm-hmm. A lot of the super funds are talking about it. What mm-hmm. What are the sort of the shorter-term opportunities that are there, and how tactical can you be um, in sort of taking advantage of some of these? Yeah. So we, um, you know, I would say in terms of the opportunities that we that we see it's right now, I think it's probably we're seeing the same ones as, um, you know, industry funds. Um, but we think that that will probably change over time. We are also seeing, you know, a lot of a lot of credit opportunities or apparent opportunities anyways are, are, are coming across the desk. We can be, um, we actually can be quite tactical uh, because of this, you know, you know, we talked about earlier about the sort of barbell approach um, to portfolio management. And I would say that we are not really far down that line. We're, you know, pretty structurally, you know, we have a strategic asset allocation and it's reasonably well balanced and diversified. Um, so we're not, you know, we don't really use a barbell, but we have um, really short up liquidity in both in cash, in cash, cash, and in um, sort of short duration credit, which you know, who knows how liquid that will be when you need it. But, um, you know, we do, we have shored up a little bit of a war chest. So we, so that we can be, um, you know, I guess tactical, we would see that as not so much tactical as finding a good entry point for long-term opportunities, but nonetheless, we are, um, you know, we have built in an ability to be able to do that. And we are certainly, you know, eager to deploy that when good opportunities come up. The challenge that we have is, is like I said before, it's about determining whether or not the opportunities we're seeing now are, um, you know, are the best that we're going to see. How much should we deploy there, and how much should we sort of hold on and wait for for more? You know, I think there's this sense that there's going to be this, you know, I'm calling it this golden wave of private equity opportunities. Um, you know, as we move through this crisis, uh, you know, so we're just really grappling with you know, is that, is that really the case or not? You know, I think it's clear that there will be distress, um, you know, through the economy as we, especially as fiscal support, monetary support is unwound. But, you know, the question is, is that going to be in areas that you really want to, you know, that you really consider an opportunity? I think one thing that's interesting about this crisis, as everyone knows, is that, you know, it's a lot more visible, which sectors are going to be the most 
impaired. And so I think that means that, um, you know, I'm not sure that means there will be this wave of opportunities that we're kind of hoping there will be. Is that fair then to say that you're probably willing to sort of wait it out another year or so to sort of see how this current crisis sort of unravels, I guess? Yes, I think that's right. I think that's one of the benefits of being in this space is that you have the luxury of sitting on that cash and waiting. You know, we don't have any, uh, you know, peer benchmarks we need to worry about. And, um, you know, I think that nobody's, you know, worried they won't be able to, you know, put dinner on the table if we if we sit on some cash. So I think, you know, we definitely have the luxury of doing that. Um, and so and so we will in this case, I think, you know, we will, but um, we're just, I guess, keen to make sure, you know, we stay we stay active and, and vigilant uh, to finding good opportunities. But I don't think, you know, we think it's best to err on the side of waiting. Yeah. And is that would that same thinking apply to sort of general equities in terms of valuations as to where they're at? Yeah, look, we're just not even looking to listed equities for opportunities at this stage. Um, you know, we certainly there might be there might be more, but we're not, you know, we we, we, we took um, some opportunities um, in listed equities already, you know. Um, and so we were fortunate to be able to have the capital and the you know, willingness uh, to, to take some opportunities in March Um you know, when it seemed like they were there. So we've, we've done that. But at this stage right now, um, you know, we would agree with many market participants that listed equities are pretty expensive. So we're thinking elsewhere for opportunities. Mm -hmm. and, and taking it back to the whole broader absolute return sort of approach that we talked at the start, you know, what are you doing maybe potentially in that absolute returns investment space? There's a lot of strategies that operate there around sort of macro funds and um, some volatility style strategies. Do you look at that area as well? You know, we really don't. Um, and I think we really don't. And I think this is an interesting um, area because family offices will be totally across the spectrum on this. I think, um, you know, we have, we have, we have done some sort of, I'll call them, you know, liquid alts or, you know, hedge fund style strategies, which I guess would be less liquid depending on how you use that term. But, um, you know, we have done some of that stuff in the past, very little. We've been, you know, modestly happy with it, I guess, um, for the most part. But we just kind of feel like, especially with regard to liquid alternatives, it just doesn't make much sense for us. You know, they haven't really, um, many of them have, have disappointed and for us, it just, you know, I guess it gets a little bit back to this barbell that we keep talking about, um, you know, sort of, what's the point? Um, you know, I think many of those strategies are built to help with sequencing risk and we don't really face that. And so I think, you know, we're happy to just take risk, you know, and uh, we're not really look necessarily looking to hedge that risk out. We can wear risk and we're happy to do so um, where that makes sense. So I think that many of those strategies, you know, as discussed, the complexity is, you know, it's not prohibitive, but um, it's, you know, we don't, we don't necessarily love it all the time. Um, and so, you know, and, and, and then what they've actually produced in many cases just hasn't really, you know, been anything that we need to be, to be quite honest. Now that's not to say we never will. Certainly there are some excellent strategies out there and um, you know, we're always, we're always keeping one eye on them, but we're, but we, you know, we're not that motivated, I guess. Mm -hmm. 
Final question. You, you mentioned earlier about sort of working with other family officers and there's a bit of a network there. You know, can you give a bit more context on on what that looks like? Is that sort of sharing ideas from investment strategy ideas or investment particular um, projects that you like to look at together? What what does that look like? Um, well, that is a very good question, actually, because that sort of changes all the time, I guess. You know, it just sort of sort of depends. We're all we do a lot of uh, we do a lot of feeling each other out. <laughs> you know, we have a, a lot of copies and kind of ask, well, oh, what is sort of what are you doing about this? And what are you doing about that? You know, everyone is very uh, protective of privacy. So we're always kind of trying to we're sort of tiptoeing and then and then you sort of we tend to sort of settle on something that's like oh yes we're both sort of working on this problem together you know we're both sort of working on this problem we can we can help each other out uh, or you know here's an opportunity that you know we think is great and you know we'd love to have a co-investor let's say um, you know those kinds of things that's how we you know that's how it tends to go uh, you know we sort of build up a relationship over time and then as where where we find out that we have commonalities or or similar aims, then uh, then we can we can work together um, on those on those kinds of things. So it just sort of depends because you know as we've discussed, every family office is quite different. So um, you know how we can help each other changes from office to office. Though so I will say one thing that is really one one massive benefit we get from that peer network is on the softer side of things as well. In terms of like, how do you, um, you know, less investment focused, I mean, and, and more focused on how do you sort of manage issues related to, um, you know, uh, family management and, and, and governance structures and, and how do you, you know, face, you know, how do you deal maybe with aging uh, you know, aging family members that are, you know, still in control and, and you know, just kind of um, thornier issues, I guess, uh, more qualitative issues uh, that network is just really invaluable for as well. Mm-hmm. All right. That's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for your time today, Catherine. Yeah, absolutely, Alex. Thanks so much. Take care. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.